This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. The men's soccer team made it to the FIFA World Cup, but it was the women's team that helped them get there. Lori Wilson reads, The women's national team taught Canada how to be a soccer country. This is an article titled, The Women's National Team Taught Canada How to Be a Soccer Country, by Harley Rustad. Alfonso Davies hunted the ball, running after it so fast, he would have received a ticket in many school zones. It was October 13, 2021, on a breezy night at Toronto's BMO Field, and Davies, the then 20-year-old Canadian phenom, was about to do something truly special. It was a cagey game between Canada and Panama, one of dozens of crucial matchups among teams from North America, Central America, and the Caribbean, all vying for four coveted spots from the region at the 2022 FIFA World Cup. The game was tied 1-1, well into the second half. In the 66th minute, the ball was cleared out of the Canadian end, and a Panamanian defender appeared fine with watching it head toward the touchline. Davies was not. He ran a third of the field's length, reaching a top speed of 37.1 kilometers per hour, to then deftly pluck the ball almost between the legs of the defender to keep it inbounds by a hair. With the ball at his feet, Davies turned to goal, dispatched a defender, and then shot across his body, freezing the Panamanian goalkeeper. The ball rippled the back of the net. The crowd jumped to its feet. The announcer was uproarious. It was the kind of goal that was instantly etched in the memories of the 26,622 fans who were in attendance that night, and the many thousands more watching on screens across the country. In that single radiant flash, Davies seemed to embody the spirit of the team during an unlikely run to qualify for the World Cup, driven by skill, of course, but also relentlessness, confidence, and belief. Moments like that goal are crucial for the sport, for any sport, both on and off the field. They ignite something within fans and non-fans alike that is beyond heart or mind or emotion or reason. Moments like that goal inspire kids to head out with a ball and some friends, mark a pair of goalposts with their backpacks, and try to recreate it. Iconic moments like this are like mass conversions at a megachurch. Lay people watch, find unexplainable rapture, and become followers. That's how fandom starts. And that's how it builds. Some moments have come from pure awe at what we just witnessed. Dutch center forward Robin Van Persie's meme-generating diving header at the 2014 World Cup. Some have come by continental jubilation. South Africa's Sipui Tashbalala scoring the inaugural goal at the 2010 World Cup, the first time the tournament had been held in Africa. Some moments have been sparked by shock. France's Zindine Zidane, who built a career on quieter moments of mastery, headbutting the chest of an opponent in the waning minutes of the final game of the 2006 World Cup. And some have been sparked by otherworldly skill. Argentina's Diego Maradona, dribbling across two-thirds of the pitch, all the while humiliating half of England's team to score in the 1986 World Cup. 
For the Canadian men's soccer team, moments like these have been virtually non-existent. Only one player on the current national team, Atiba Hutchinson, was alive when the men's team last played in a World Cup in 1986, in which the team didn't win a game or score a single goal. Apart from a flash in 2000, when the Canada men's soccer team won the CON-CACAF Gold Cup, it's entirely possible that a fan's entire emotional journey following the team for the past few decades would not have been defined by a series of transcendent, iconic moments representing the gamut of human expression, but by one consistent feeling, apathy. National iconic moments in the sport, rather, came from a different team wearing the same red and white. While the men's team was quietly suffering, losing, yearning to pass that elusive global threshold, the women's team was changing the game and transforming the landscape of Canadian soccer. I've been following Canada's women's soccer team for most of my life, more closely than any other sports team I've been a fan of, more than my Arsenal FC, more than my San Francisco 49ers, more than my Chicago Blackhawks. My older sister played for the national team, beginning in 1999 and culminating at the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. More times than I can remember, I woke up in the small hours of the morning to catch a game being played on the other side of the world. I was a little kid then, bleary-eyed, and yet punching the air and waving a flag and jumping up and down on our pull-out couch and cheering so loudly, I surely must have woken the neighbors. I'll never forget 2002. That summer, Canada hosted the FIFA U19 Women's World Championship, a tournament that some say, quote, changed Canadian soccer forever. While teams are formally categorized as, quote, men's and, quote, women's, not every player identifies as either gender. On the afternoon of September 1st, Canada played the U.S. for the trophy in front of nearly 50,000 fans, a number that shocked then-FIFA president Seth Blatter. Quote, What they have realized here is extraordinary in the 27 years I've witnessed FIFA events. It goes under the skin. It gives goose pimples. This whole event has been ballistic. It was the second most attended soccer game of either men's or women's in Canada ever, and according to FIFA, still holds the record for the most fans ever to watch one of its youth women's games anywhere. Despite losing the final, these teenagers, including my sister, some of whom were still in high school, hooked a country and never let go. The decade that followed saw a global surge of women's soccer, with countries developing national programs and competition increasing around the world. For Canada, the women's national team won gold at the CONCACAF tournament in 2010 and gold again the following year at the Pan American Games, setting the stage for the 2012 Olympic Games in London, UK, where came one of the most iconic moments in Canadian sport. On August 5th, Canada and the U.S. met once again in the semifinals. The winner would play for gold and silver, the loser for bronze or nothing. Pat Conzella, for the Bleacher Report, called the match, quote, one of the best games ever played. Men, women, Super Bowls, World Series, Stanley Cups. You can put this game up against all of these staples of American sports, and you could make a great case that USA versus Canada stacks up against, and maybe even surpasses, the most exciting game ever played.
It was that and more. A game that marked the pinnacle of one of Canada's greatest athletes, longtime national team captain Christine Sinclair, who scored all three of Canada's goals. A game marked by controversy and confusion over a late call by the referee that gave the U.S. a tying goal and by a series of comebacks and an overtime that left many viewers nailless. In any game, in any sport, you can't ask for more drama and suspense, more shock and awe, more elation and heartbreak, depending on whose colors or colors you cheered for. I can still recount its key moments from memory. Canada lost, but went on to rally from such a gutting defeat to beat France with a last-minute goal by Diane Matheson, another stalwart of the Canadian roster. To earn bronze, Canada's second Olympic medal in soccer ever. The first one was in 1904. Nine years later, amid lockdowns and isolation during the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo, Canada avenged that loss against the U.S. by beating them in a similar matchup and booking a spot in the gold medal game. The most indelible moment of that tournament, in my mind, came in the middle of that match against Sweden. While the referee was making a decision on whether to award a penalty shot to Canada, Sinclair, who had just played in her 300th game for Canada, held the ball. Presumably, every Swedish player and everyone watching assumed she would take the shot. Then, as Sinclair stepped toward the spot, she handed the ball to 23-year-old Jesse Fleming, a rising star on the team. It was a subtle moment many likely missed watching on TV a passing of the metaphorical torch from the older guard to the newer, a transfer of trust, a sign of how far this team had come from being driven and dominated by a single player. It was a subtle moment, but one that said more about the future of Canadian soccer than any I've seen. Canada won gold in soccer. I cried. I watched Sinclair, who was 19 during that breakout 2002 tournament, celebrate nearly two decades later with an Olympic gold medal. I wasn't alone. While more than 4.4 million Canadians watched at home on the CBC, no fans were in the stadium that night in Tokyo, that second summer of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some might have seen that victory as anticlimactic, to win gold without a crowd watching and screaming. But in a way, it was perfect. The exuberance and exaltations of the team weren't muffled by the screams of a jubilant horde. We screamed at home. We cried at home. They screamed on the field. They cried on the field. And we heard it all. It may be impossible to categorically link the long-time success of the women's team with the fresh, blossoming success of the men's. Much of the men's team's development over the past decade has undoubtedly been due to several gardens of growth. The surging quality of Major League Soccer, MLS, in Canada and the U.S., more Canadian players being trained in Europe, more funding being poured into both grassroots teams and international squads. It may not be quantifiable, but the profound impact our women's team has had on the country's overall development as a soccer nation exists and matters. With each moment they gave us, Canada grew as a soccer-loving nation. Time and again, our women's national team has outperformed, overperformed, and exceeded expectations, and arrived and delivered exactly what was needed when we didn't realize we needed it. 
the men have finally reached the greatest stage once again. The women have taught us how to support them. They gave us moments to remember, players to idolize, games to recall from memory, and, above all, a story that helped us define this country's international game and those who adore it. Alfonso Davies has offered one iconic moment for men's soccer out of nothing, one that instantly became a symbol. Even when the ball, the goal, feels so far out of reach, you can still ignite a country in rapturous unison with a single moment of absolute brilliance. I hope that whenever the final whistle is blown for Canada and this wonderful, surprising, elating run comes to an end, that what transpires on the grass will leave us feverishly recounting another iconic moment for years. Maybe it will be a sensational expression of skill. Or maybe it will be something more political, like an act of solidarity, or a bold expression against the human rights abuses in Qatar. Or maybe it will be when we score our first ever goal in a men's World Cup, or even win our first game in that tournament of tournaments. This past March, I stood next to a friend, high in the stands at BMO Field, watching the men's team play against Jamaica in the final home game in the long qualification series for the World Cup. It was well below zero, a fierce wind ripping off Lake Ontario and cutting through the stadium, through our jackets to our bare skin. Nothing could warm us. No blowing into hands, no stamping feet, no shrugging. Then Canada scored, and scored again, and won for nothing. That did it. The men's team clinched its spot in the World Cup for the first time since 1986. I remember saying to my friend over and over again, quote, I just can't believe this is happening. Belief is crucial to any sports fan. It makes us do things like take cross-city or cross-country or cross-continental pilgrimages to watch 22 strangers kick a ball around for 90 minutes. We do all these things because we're desperate to bet on the chance of witnessing an iconic moment. We do all these things because we hope to be rewarded by a random point along the euphoric and devastating and utterly addicting spectrum of emotions that is fandom. Our women's team has long supplied that belief. In our men's, I can feel it growing. That was an article titled, The Women's National Team Taught Canada How to Be a Soccer Country, by Harley Rustad. I'm Lori Wilson. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Bill Shackleton and Jacob Shemansky. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.